Welcome to Rast Talk, a podcast on recirculating aquaculture and sustainable food production. Brought to you by Rastec, the premier publication for Rast professionals. Hello and welcome to another episode of Rast Talk. I'm your host, Marilyn de Guzman, and with me is co-host Brian Vinci, Director of the Freshwater Institute. Hello, Brian. Hello, Marilyn. How are you? I'm good. A lot of change in the world since our last episode, eh? With this global Many pandemic, changes. it continues to spread. Many changes, changing the way people are working. Yeah, yeah certainly. As in our company at, here at Annex Business Media, we've all been asked to work from home since about a couple of weeks ago, and it's you know it's a lot of adjustment to this new workplace reality. I guess we all we all have to do our part. I guess in you know doing all the social distancing that, so that we can help slow the spread of the virus. <sighs> I'm wondering about you, Brian, how about in your workplace, how has it impacted your organization? Well, it's been challenging, Marilyn. Um, you know that we run a applied research facility that's essentially a demonstration farm. And although we are an essential part of the food and agriculture sector, we have still taken the social distancing to heart yeah. and gone to an essential staff-only schedule with most of our 16 people um, telecommuting, but we have folks in all day long coverage from fish production staff and water chemistry, and then from um, operations and maintenance. And we we're doing that for two weeks, and we're actually going to be doing a shift now that we we recently heard that we're um, we're not just closing for the you know these two weeks, but we're going to the end of March as well. Yeah looks like this is going to be the new reality, the new norm for at least a few more weeks for all the workplaces and all organizations across industries. Yeah, and, and I think in terms of our specific industry and, and, and our listeners, uh, many of the projects that were moving ahead full steam, like uh, Eric Himes, Nordic Aqua, I'm sure are, are slowing down a bit. And, uh, and I wonder about construction on uh, other sites like um, Atlantic Sapphire and, and various other locations, how quickly they are able to continue with their construction. Yeah, we'd be curious to, to know about that. Um, we have two guests that are joining us in our, in our discussion today. So first off is uh, John Davidson, is a research scientist at the Freshwater Institute. Hello and welcome, John. Hi, everyone. Uh, thanks for having me today. It's been an interesting uh, last couple of weeks, and I echo uh, Brian's comments about the adjustment uh, from working from home. And we have uh, uh, my daughter's here; uh, she's home, and we're we're trying to balance homeschooling. And it's definitely a, a different uh, atmosphere than than I'm used to. Right. I know that's uh, that's another thing that we're all faced with working from home, yeah. <laughs> With the kids around, hanging, hovering. <laughs> I wonder, John, if that's better than having me come down to your office and bother you. I think I was talking to Travis or somebody on the phone and saying that, you know, these things all balance out. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely. So our, th- our second guest is um, a well-known veteran in the aquaculture industry, and he's also the director of aquaculture at Habitat Life, Justin Henry. Uh, Habitat Life is based in Chase, uh, British Columbia here in Canada, and it's a licensed producer of cannabis and is also producing coho salmon in an innovative aquaponic system. Welcome, Justin. Thank you, Marilyn. Hello, Brian. Hello, John. Thanks for having me. So, Justin, all the way from British Columbia, uh, I've seen, um, I guess Vancouver was in the news today, uh, you know, 
with people hanging out in in the beach, enjoying the sun, and sort of ignoring the whole social distancing call. So wonder. So uh, what is that? For I real? know. Yeah. Uh, well, <laughs> Justin Trudeau came and uh, like he issued a statement again, urging everybody to um, you know stay home, you know, do social distancing. It, it is a challenge, uh, especially uh, here where. It is uh, springtime in, in full force and, uh, and beautiful weather. And um, of course, I'm not an epidemiologist, uh, but we really have to listen to the experts here. And they say that social distancing is, is not being taken seriously enough in, in, uh, in Vancouver or in a lot of North America yet. Yeah. So what we have to do at this time is get... Um, get the general public to, to stay home uh, the more we practice, you know, healthy hygiene, social distancing, and, and isolation when, when it's warranted, uh, the faster we're going to get through this health crisis. Right. Uh, however, some uh, other, uh, like other essential services, uh, we still have to farm. Yeah. So, yeah, speaking about that, I, can you talk a little bit more about uh, your company Habitat Life um, and how it's being impacted. Uh, I guess from the cannabis industry perspective and the production of fish, uh, like the aquaculture side of things. And I'm just hearing like I'm reading some news in in the cannabis industry side. And I know if I don't know if this is across the board, like they're seeing increased sales uh, amid like in the wake of this COVID-19, I'm not sure if it's people are stockpiling or what are you seeing in your business in the industry? Well, for the business uh, at, at Habitat Life, they're early on in their development and they've actually only just uh, harvested their first uh, plant crop. So that will uh, go to market in the next uh, week or, or two. Uh, now there's... Um, of course, there. It's true that there has been an increased uh, demand uh, for that product, and I think for other products like alcohol, and for some strange reason, toilet paper, uh, and so on. Uh, but definitely a, a run on uh, on a few of those products. So that will be good for uh, you know for sales for for this, uh, assuming that they don't. Um, close all of the stores down, which uh, is a possibility, and, and a lot of them uh, have closed down already. Yeah, and, and in the um, in the food seafood sector, I guess a lot of the, um, the restaurants and the, the closures or the cut at the, the reduced hours is definitely affecting um, uh, sales. So, Justin, we stay in touch pretty frequently, but I didn't know that you had uh, taken a role um, with this new company. Um, what other things are keeping you busy nowadays? Well, it's been pretty busy in this uh, sector, uh, Brian. You know, there's such um, an interest in uh, RAS uh, worldwide now. So there have been uh, some interesting projects uh, involved with um, a project that is uh, in the design uh, phase, a, a large uh, salmon uh, project in the U.S., uh, and also involved uh, on the education side at the University of British Columbia. We've developed a four-month 
or one semester graduate certificate in aquaculture, which we will be uh, launching this fall in September. So we've got a few experts from the industry that uh, will be teaching the program as well as from uh, academia and government. Uh, so we're pretty excited uh, to try to get more uh, people to take that uh, career path to get into the industry. Excellent. How do folks learn more about that uh, certificate program? Uh, Brian, they can, if people are interested in that, they can go to the UBC website and the site is aqua.landfood.ubc.ca. So, uh, Justin, can you talk about some of the um, measures or things that uh, at your workplace, or I guess some recommendations that you would uh, that you 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 can give uh, uh, workplaces out there, especially in the aquaculture industry, and what measures they can take in terms of um, safeguarding against the spread of the virus and and um, uh, protecting against uh, COVID nineteen. Yeah, thanks, Marilyn. At Habitat Life. Uh, the facility was already set up with a very high level of biosecurity, which I think lots of RAS facilities are, are already set up that way. So you've got, uh, you're already, um, you know, partway there. Uh, at this facility, you're already changing clothes into indoor scrubs uh, that are provided by the company, um, wearing hairnets and gloves washing your hands upon entry and lots of hand disinfection baths. I think the changes that, that we've implemented there have been uh, around the social distancing. So some of those things are to stagger breaks, uh, to have any meetings that you need with the staff, to have those by teleconference. Uh, executives that don't need to be on site should stay off the site. Uh, no visitors allowed um, at the site at all. And any staff who have uh, any form of uh, symptoms that, that they just need to stay home. Brian, do you have anything to add? As Justin mentioned, we do have in place very strong biosecurity measures. And we have been, uh, as I mentioned earlier, limiting staff on site to actually just one or two people at any one time to really ratchet down on the social distancing. I think though, as we move forward, we have experiments that we need to continue and we will likely be having a few more staff on station and they will have, be having to work together to move fish and uh, take samples for lengths and weights. And so we are talking about the standard procedures that we'll employ to do that, likely um, to use Tyvek and uh, and gloves and things like that to minimize uh, potential transfer of the virus. I just wrote a, uh, a feature for the coming issue of Hatchery International. Biosecurity is really, you know, something that's always been practiced at um, hatcheries and um, RAS facilities and aquaculture facilities. So, you know, I guess workers there, it's not something new to them, but it's more, I guess, more enforced right now. So, um, I guess we can talk about our, you know, uh, topic of the day, which is uh, off flavor in RAS uh, raised fish. Uh, so I'll start with, maybe I'll start with uh, John um, 
and talk about, I know that you've done, uh, at Freshwater Institute has done a few studies, um, experiments on mitigating off flavor, uh, investigating this a little bit further. Um, what have been uh, some of the findings uh, in, in this area? Yeah, we've been looking at this for uh, nearly a decade now. It dates all the way back to uh, the first publication that we were co-authors on. Uh, that was a, a paper published by Gary Burr and their team uh, at the USDA Agricultural Research Service uh, Center in Maine uh, with Atlantic Sam. And they were one of the first facilities to really look at the process of depurating fish that were raised in rice. Uh, we were co-authors on that paper, and that paper is publicly available, uh, as are all the papers that we work on and publish uh, at the Freshwater Institute. You can uh, get those on our website. Um, and then we followed up uh, on that research with our own research at the Freshwater Institute that we published in Aquacultural Engineering in 2014. And basically, we we looked at just a couple different aspects to try to optimize the, the depuration process. So we looked at systems that were pre-disinfected versus uh, systems that already had some biofilm. And then we also looked at uh, systems that contained water aeration media inside of uh, gas conditioning columns versus systems that didn't have the media. So a long story short for that study, we found that it's better to disinfect systems and to have clean biofilm-free systems to start with. And then uh, on that note, it's also good to have the least amount of surface area for uh, all flavor producing bacteria and biofilms to attach to. Uh, and so we found that it's better to have systems that are void of extra uh, surface area that's provided by aeration media. So those were the, the two key findings uh, of some of the early research, um, really establishing that we, we feel like we need to have a depuration process in place to mitigate uh, all flavor. And then I can talk a little bit more about uh, some of the more recent research um, that we've been doing, because we have a few studies that we just completed that uh, I'm currently at home working on papers for. John, when we were doing the the initial work, do you remember um, actually tasting those fish uh, before we sent them out for analysis? Because, you know, the geosmin and MIB concentrations um, are so low to begin with, and there, there's a certain human threshold. I'm just wondering if, if you mm -hmm. recall actually tasting the off-flavor in those studies and then the difference. I don't recall actually tasting it. Uh, it could be that other folks tried some of those fish. Uh, this is one of the, the challenges that comes along with this problem is it's not easy to scientifically set up a taste panel um, because everybody has different taste thresholds. Uh, for example, I don't personally think that I'm a really good person to serve as a, a taster. I, I think I can taste all flavor, but I don't think I can taste like small hints of it, for example. So I think this is something that we, we need to look into further um, in trying to really match up some of the science and the, the analysis that we're getting in the raw data with actual taste uh, information. Justin, was that your experience with the, the sturgeon at Northern Divine as well, that it was, it was uh, the taste palate of each individual really affected whether or not they could taste that? There's definitely a, a difference. You know, when we're when we're sampling um, fish for for uh, off flavors, 
uh, and sampling uh, eggs as well. Uh, you know, some sure some people wouldn't wouldn't notice it at all, and and others can identify just the tiniest uh, hint of off flavor. First time that I tasted an earthy off flavor in fish was when I was about ten years old. And I was out fishing with my family at a lake in the interior of British Columbia. And we kept, uh, it was for rainbow trout, we kept a, a fish for dinner and made trout almondine, typically delicious, but not this time. So we were, we were later told by regular campers there not to eat the fish out of this lake because they have this muddy off flavor. And at the time, and I thought it had something to do with mud at the bottom of the lake. Uh, then the second time that I tasted muddy off flavor in fish was quite a few years later. It was about uh, 17 years ago when we served our ras-grown sturgeon at an Aquaculture Canada conference. And it was the first time we'd harvested sturgeon. And, and I didn't know what the off flavor was at the time, but I knew that we had to get it out of there. And we needed to ensure that it never happened again. I find it a little bit shocking that 17 years later, that we still have some ras farmers that don't grasp the importance of this. And those were the only two times that I've tasted it uh, by surprise. Now I check for it uh, with every single bite, uh, every time, everywhere I go, and uh, always ask farmers uh, you know, what finishing protocols they use and encourage farmers to taste their fish and taste them often and just make sure they're not sending anything out there that doesn't taste perfect. How how important was the off flavor when it came to the caviar? I mean, did that carry through from the fish flesh into the eggs and then through the um, the aging process of the eggs? The off flavor in the eggs is as big or a bigger concern uh, than it is in the flesh. Because the eggs have such a high oil content, it's more difficult or takes a longer time to finish those fish if you're harvesting them for eggs. That goes for both sturgeon and for salmon. So what did you, what did you do at Northern Divine to rid your fish of and the eggs of their off flavor? At Northern Divine, it was finishing system where it was pretty simple there because there was quite a bit of water available. So in that case, it was a matter of moving fish to uh, flow through tanks for a certain amount of time. And that period of time varied uh, depending on the size of the fish. Uh, as well as whether they were going uh, just for meat or for meat and caviar. With the system that we have set up at Habitat Life, that's a little bit different in that the finishing system is a RAS as well. So it's a little bit uh, trickier to develop the right protocol for finishing. I was just reading an article at the University of Copenhagen before the podcast about their findings when looking at cleaning of RAS systems and the geosmin and MIB levels within the water in that system. And 
I can imagine if you were operating a, a RAS for your deparation system that it would definitely be challenging to make sure the the levels of the Jasmine and MIB were low. But we've heard that other producers out there, specifically on the salmon side, are harvesting fish directly out of their recirculation systems and are able to somehow manage the off flavors to acceptable levels, which to me is just amazing. You think it's amazing that they can do that successfully? Or do you think it's amazing that they think they can do that without damaging their brand? <laughs> um, I think it was the, the first. It's amazing that they could do it successfully, although I don't have any personal experience with tasting fish from, from producers that are doing that. I assume it's challenging since you have some experience with that at your current uh, production facility. In those facilities, Brian, do those have something in common? Are they from a similar technology supplier or have they implemented something uh, that will uh, limit the development of the off-flavor? I I wish I could speak to that. I, I don't, they are not of the same technology provider. But what I've heard is only really what I've read um, on this from some of the producers that they feel they have the off-flavor um, issue under control and that they manage their water quality such that the MIB and Jasmine do not become a problem in their harvested product. John and I have talked about this um, at length, and we're not exactly sure um, how that's possible, but I guess it is. I think taste must be subjective. I'm not sure if I if I'd be able to tell, but um, in terms of going to market and people, the consumers, are they? Is this something that we just know around the industry? But is it what are you finding uh, out there? Uh, this is John. Um, my experience is that I guess first of all that we've had uh, only positive remarks back about our fish that we. Um, move out of the Freshwater Institute from our, our research. And uh, some of those fish have gone into different markets, local markets, uh, DC, Baltimore area. And we've only had positive reviews back from chefs and distributors uh, on our product. We're happy with uh, the procedures that we have in place. I would say that it's something that folks need to take very seriously because uh, if a distributor or a chef you know, has a bad perception of your product that could significantly affect your sales. And I think, you know, as an industry, a growing industry, this is kind of a wider arching issue where just the perception of a new product, a land-based or a RAS product or whatever you want to call it, may all get lumped together. So I, I think that's the caution that we all need to take. And then the idea of sharing information to be able to, to solve this problem may affect the entire industry. And I think this is an area, you know, where if, you know, places want to share information, this is the, the topic that we should be communicating about. And, and are you finding that, I guess this is for both you and, and, and Justin and maybe Brian too can chime in, like, is that something you're finding that across the industry that uh, uh, people are sharing information about how their their own how they're mitigating this uh, flow, off flavor issues in their own uh, in their own environments and sharing those best practices and recommendations. Is that something you're finding? Well, Marilyn, this is Brian. Um, I would say yes through the Aquaculture Innovation Workshop, but unfortunately, of course, we've had to right. postpone postpone that event. But we have often uh, touched on this topic. John, Justin. 
I think in general uh, that a lot of people want to uh, share their research, share the information uh, with the sector. However, there are some that uh, think they've developed something top secret and want to keep it to themselves. I think in general, some of those turn out to be uh, inaccurate and eventually they end up with off-flavor fish as well. Uh, or they are implementing some type of finishing uh, system, uh, maybe just not uh, the same as uh, what is being uh, discussed. I think it's definitely one of the key areas of research that has to be carried out in the RAS space. We need to find out how to prevent the off-flavor producing bacteria from growing in the RAS, or we need to find out how to consume the off-flavor compounds within the RAS. Assuming these compounds aren't persistent, there must be something that can consume them. So that's a really interesting point. And I want to throw it over to John because you know, John has been really at the forefront of our research on off-flavor, and, and he's been talking to collaborators in Europe about other potential technologies. John, I wonder if you'd talk a little bit about some of the, the newer things that um, might be what Justin is getting at, which, you know, ways to reduce the chemicals within the RAS itself. Yeah, Brian, I've heard about several different um, potential technologies or components within systems that can uh, potentially mitigate all flavor. Uh, one uh, component that has been discussed is uh, a method to mitigate all flavor is uh, the use of anoxic zones within RAS, uh, potentially denitrification, uh, where the sludge can uptake and absorb all flavor. Uh, so this is one potential area, but at the same time, I've also seen a recent publication that uh, discussed release of those off-flavor compounds from the sludge uh, during cleaning events and that kind of thing. So while there is some promise there, you know, this is another example where it hasn't completely been proven, but there's just some early evidence to show that that's a potential example where um, there might be something to that. I've also heard rumblings, I, I don't have any evidence, but uh, high dose ozone uh, and certain UV uh, dosages could potentially uh, mitigate all flavor. So there's a variety of different um, things that I'm hearing about, but we don't, I don't think we have enough science to back, you know, any of these examples right now. I'm curious to know, uh, Justin, in your facility, um what are the the measures that you're you're taking in terms of uh, addressing this uh, mitigate uh, this off flavor issue? As I mentioned, uh, at Northern Divine with the sturgeon, they have flow through tanks that they can use, uh, and they are working very well at removing any off flavor. With the RAS finishing system that we're using at Habitat Light. We've done a little bit of work with just a couple of variables, and one is uh, duration of finishing, and one is the percent makeup water. I should say we developed these finishing systems using the uh, research data published by John and, and Brian and others at the Freshwater Institute, uh, and that's, I think, really gone a, a long way in being able to easily uh, develop a, a system that works. 
Uh, now, of course, uh, they've published a lot of information about duration, uh, but the percent makeup water in the finishing system also has a significant influence in the ability to remove off flavor. John, do you want to quickly comment on that? Because of the most recent study you completed was exactly on that topic. Yeah, so I alluded to, you know, some recent research that we've carried out at Freshwater Institute, and that is exactly one of the studies that we um, finished up, and uh, I hope to actually within the month, by the end of the month, to have that paper submitted for peer review. But essentially, we looked at three different hydraulic retention times, and we um, sent samples out both uh, for water from the depuration systems and we send out uh, fish flesh samples for analysis uh, to a partner at the uh, USDA ARS. And we have that data back and it essentially shows that uh, the more water that you flush, the more rapidly you remove off flavor uh, from your depuration systems and from the fish flesh. The fastest and the most effective uh, hydraulic retention time was uh, 2.4 hours. So that's two and a, uh, about two and a half hours for the entire uh, depuration partial reuse system to exchange its water volume. But 4.8 hour retention time was just about as good. And then the, the last treatment that we looked at was, I think, 11.3 hours. And we still were able to depurate fish with that retention time, but it just wasn't quite as good as the other two treatments. John, was that, do you remember what the liters per kilo of biomass was? Was that a thousand liters per kilo? Do you recall? Yeah, that's about, uh, if you have to break this down at, uh, into a metric that, um, that potentially RAS producers could use, about a thousand kilograms per liter of water seems to be what you, you need. A thousand liters per kilo. Uh, yes, that's right. We really haven't carried out a study to specifically look at at biomass, but uh, if you kind of track back to different studies, that metric seems to seems to work for the most part. Uh, in your at Habitat, you're using you have an aquaponic system. Does that is that um, in terms of from the point of view or perspective of the the off flavor, is it is there a difference in terms of how you or the the resulting off flavor with the with the regular RAS or with the aquaponic system, or is all is it all just the same? In this case, the aquaponic system is decoupled. So the fish RAS operates like any other fish RAS would operate, and the finishing system would be the same. Justin, earlier you mentioned that uh, those farms that are harvesting from the RAS directly indicating they don't have any off flavor in their fish um, might have a special technology or, or a special uh, protocol. Um, and I commented that, you know, I wasn't really aware of the details there, but I am very skeptical that you can, based on our research, that you can harvest straight from the RAS without a really closely watching it. And on these huge RAS, when you look at the renderings or the designs, I just don't see any finishing systems in there, and it it makes me wonder. How about you? Well, Brian, I that would also make me wonder, and it's uh, concerning in a way that people aren't appreciating the importance of this part of production. Now, having said that, there may be a system that 
could take a production tank offline and use that as the finishing tank. You could use that as a, a flow-through tank, for example. That, that might be the only way to do it, or, or even just to turn it into a, a partial reuse system. But John's research indicated to us early on that it's the biofilms. And unless you can clean the biofilms off, that the, the off-flavor compounds persist. Right, John? Yeah, that's really the line of thinking, that you really need to have a, a depuration system. Or if you're harvesting from your immediately from your RAS, it's going to have to be a very clean system. I mean, biofilm can, can grow on any surface the tank surface, uh, inside of pipes. So I think this is where it becomes very difficult to, you know, think that you can mitigate this issue directly within the, the production system. I suspect that when you combine your research on uh, surface area together with your research on HRT, you might find that at a certain HRT, it doesn't matter about the surface area on the tank walls etc if you take a tank and you switch that to flow through it doesn't matter about what's growing on the walls of that tank if the flow through overcomes the the geosmin and mib concentrations that are coming off the walls it would just push it, them out yeah. exactly yeah, yeah. It, it would take a lot of water to do that, but I, I... It, that, that's the problem is the amount of, of water, you know, with all of the concerns about it, there is a solution. We have finishing systems that work and the challenge with those systems is that they add CapEx and they add OpEx to RAS production. And we have farmers and instances where finishing protocols have not been properly implemented. So it's definitely an area for improvement. Agreed. You you mentioned costs, and we were thinking hard about this um, probably about know, four or five months ago or even longer. We had the final group of Atlantic salmon from a grow-out trial that we had kept um, in case of potential research opportunities, and we decided to, to look at the economics surrounding the depuration. I don't know, John, if you wanted to jump into that and and tell us about what we found there in terms of um, fillet or uh, product loss. Yeah, that's one of the other studies that we we recently completed, and you know, one of my colleagues is working on that paper right now to try to get that information out to industry. I will say that that one of the early studies also looked at this. This was the the Burr et al. study, uh, but they had salmon that were smaller than market size. But I I jotted it down here so I could share it during the podcast that. At day five, uh, they noted 3.8% uh, loss. I believe that was total body weight. I'd have to look back. Uh, at day 10, they had 4.3% weight loss. And at day 20, uh, it was, I believe, 5.8%. So we carried out uh, similar research, um, uh, but we had very large salmon that were maybe even beyond market size. I think six kilos plus. And Travis, uh, our production manager at, at the Freshwater Institute, just shared this data with me this morning uh, that we had 2.1% loss of total body weight. Uh, this is a, a whole fish. Uh, at That was at day six. We had 3.5% uh, at day 10 depuration and 4.25% at day 14. So uh, the take-home message is the longer that you, you have to depurate, 
uh, there are some consequences that uh, are economically you know, based where you're going to lose some profit margin if your fish are losing weight. I think that the, the number of days of depuration is going to vary uh, among facilities. And that's a conversation that I've had with some of our stakeholders is that you know, they, they look at our research and uh, we can typically depurate uh, our protocol is six days and we've never had any negative feedback for six days of depuration. Uh, but we also have relatively warm water where we are in West Virginia, particularly in the summertime. So our depuration systems are usually about 14 degrees Celsius, but off flavor, it tends to come out of the fish flesh or be metabolized a little bit slower in colder water. So the further that you, you move north, uh, you may have a longer depuration period. And this is also species specific. So there's a lot of variables that play into the number of days. Uh, but for us at the Fresh, Freshwater Institute, six days works. It sounds like a super interesting study, John. Uh, and I think that it would be valuable to compare the loss at uh, day two, for example, uh, to compare to uh, net pen production, where, of course, those fish are, are starved for some period of time as well and just see how much additional loss uh, you have. And of course, comparing the loss, we have to make sure that we're comparing a dressed weight or a hog weight uh, because loss of intestinal fat is maybe a good thing. Yeah, I'm glad you brought that up. That's, that's a great point. In terms of taking fish off feed for depuration, I, I want everybody to understand, at, le at least it's my understanding that this is a common practice, no matter what type of aquaculture we're talking about. Fish are taken off feed in order to clear the guts of uh, waste and feed um, as a finishing step, no matter what the process. So I think you know, for a large market size Atlantic salmon, uh, it doesn't matter if we're talking about ras or ocean-based production. Uh, both of these processes, we're having to take fish off feed for you know at least two to three days to clear to clear the gut. Uh, so we're only talking about a couple days beyond that duration, you know, for the depuration process that we use at the Freshwater Institute. Justin, we did take additional data um, on hog weight and actually blood loss um, as part of the study. So um, it was unique in that we were able to individually tag these fish and then and then follow them throughout the process and some of the fish of course were euthanized along the way so we could determine these these parameters but it was um, a little bit more in depth than just the whole weight so we'll be able to report that um, i did want to ask you part of our study included looking at fish welfare indicators like um, fin index and this is a little bit to get at the fact that we feel pretty strongly that we're maintaining good fish welfare throughout the short depuration process. But I wondered, as one of the per people who led the organic standard development in Canada, if you see this depuration process to rid the fish of off flavor as an issue with regard to that standard or those protocols. It's a good point, uh, Brian, that we have to be very aware of fish welfare throughout the entire production process. And that doesn't matter if you're uh, producing in a pond or a net pen or RAS or, or wherever it is. Uh, it's super important. And 
and definitely a, a big part of the organic standard as well is to to make sure that we're doing that now in terms of the finishing period uh, in this case we haven't noticed anything uh, different in terms of what the fish are experiencing there versus what they would experience in nature or what uh, naturally occurs. Uh, now, when we were looking at the sturgeon, uh, it was pretty straightforward because the sturgeon uh, in the wild can go in the winter to a deep cold pond and sit there for uh, some months without even uh, leaving the pool. Uh, so their, their uh, feed rate goes down uh, significantly. Uh, in terms of uh, salmon, we also see lots of examples of periods where they'll go for some time without feeding. So we take that into consideration and then look at, as you've mentioned, the indicators or parameters of the fish uh, to look for uh, stress or, or other uh, welfare indicators. And we haven't noticed um, any problem uh, that I know of uh, during mm -hmm. the finishing period. Really interesting. In terms of equipment technology development providers, what role do you see them playing in this whole? Is there, is there technology or equipment that's out there or being developed or should be developed to is that is that a potential market for these technology providers, equipment uh, providers, to address this challenge? As John mentioned earlier, there's some indication that uh, we might be able to remove some of the off-flavor compounds with different types of filtration, with anaerobic filtration, he mentioned. And I think that that's going to be a significant component uh, that the the technology providers have an opportunity to uh, be part of uh, answering this and, and solving this challenge for, for the industry, uh, which I think that they're working on. And I think that that will be the path that we go down. If I could add to that, we have had a lot of interest from different technology uh, providers that are interested in entering into this industry. Uh, to see if we can provide contract research uh, at the Freshwater Institute. This is something that we've engaged with more over the past couple of years. Um, we have a, a new relatively new facility where we have 12 partial reuse systems, uh, replicate, and we have the ability to do um, depuration research in that facility. And potentially, we haven't entered into uh, any specific projects as of yet, but we could potentially uh, incorporate certain technologies if they fit easily into systems uh, that we could evaluate. So that's something that we're getting calls about fairly regularly and something that we're entertaining and discussing uh, amongst our, our team to see if we can help in that regard. I'll just mention on this topic that I do think that um, the technology providers um, will have a role, as Justin said, and uh, it will take some of the researchers and the innovators out there to come up with the ideal solution. And, you know, could be a combination of technologies. John has mentioned uh, ozone and UV. We know that ozone does do something to, to these uh, launching uh, chemicals and creates other compounds that might be more readily removed. But um, I was reminded, uh, 
a lot of this is back to the future sometimes. I was reminded that uh, apparently there was a, a type of filter that used to paraffin wax um, to remove off flavor that was tested some 30 years ago. And uh, of course, that was well in the early days of recirculating aquaculture systems, but but it showed great promise and, and maybe um, maybe there's a paraffin wax filter or, or a filter that could um, be impregnated with something that could uptake it like uh, carbon and then and then be flushed with it um, and then be reused. And I think you know the reuse would be important there. But but there is technology development here and innovation here yet to be had. It's been an excellent discussion. Really uh, uh, good stuff for the listeners of the podcast. And um, I look forward to maybe another opportunity in the future. Marilyn? Yes, definitely. Thank you, uh, John and Justin, for uh, taking the time to speak to us today. Something that um, has to be addressed and all grass farmers, grass producers should really pay attention. And that concludes our episode. Uh, join us again next time for another edition of Ras Talk. That concludes our episode. For the latest RAS-related news, visit RASTechMagazine.com. Join us again next time for another engaging conversation here at Brass Talk.